I thought of the of that phrase, special motherly powers, and I thought there was a connection that she had to Kristen. She was so sure. He didn't really want her being around anybody else but him. People who do this to other people are practiced at this. This is typically not the first time they've tried this on someone else. So they, they, become, they become good at it in, in the worst sense. If you feel like you've got a situation with your child or your friend, you probably don't know enough right now to fix it yourself. You really need to get in touch with a helpline. And a lot of people who work those lines are people who have been in those relationships. This person feels the need to take some kind of decisive action, you know, violent tell people I'm going to break up and there's probably going to be some bumpiness that's coming after this. If you feel there's danger because this guy could show up at the door. They think it won't happen in their neighborhood or to their child. They are wrong. Kristen was a trusting person. She would never imagine that someone she cared for would ever do anything like this or hurt her. Backed by research. You're right, one in three women, that statistic is absolutely real. Now that's physical violence, but there's also emotional violence. You have to put some effort into learning about the warning signs and about unhealthy relationships because they'll tip you off. I want you to be safe, I want you to be happy, but if you're not safe, you probably won't be happy. And Kristen was not safe and she didn't know it, we didn't know it. I'm Bill Mitchell and this is When Dating Hurts a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. A couple of months back, I was interviewed by Jerusha Mack, who is with Halton Women's Place in Ontario, Canada. Jerusha is a licensed teacher and a public education team lead on Halton's violence prevention and community education team. Halton Women's Place believes the only way to end violence against women is by educating children and youth at a very young age. Things like healthy relationships, consent, digital safety, bullying, things that are happening in the media, and much more. Their program is about violence prevention, and it's proactive. They provide students with the skills and knowledge they need to have healthy relationships, how to solve conflicts in healthy ways, and how to build healthy relationships in their lives. Thanks to Jerusha Mack for interviewing me. Today, I'm in conversation with Bill Mitchell, the author of When Dating Hurts, a dedicated advocate, educating and raising awareness about domestic violence, and the father of Kristen Mitchell, a 22-year-old college student who was murdered by her boyfriend. Through this conversation, our goal is to shine a light on the issue of dating violence. Hi, Bill. Thanks for being on the show today. Hi, Jerusha. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Good. Happy to be here. Thank you. Appreciate thank this. Thank you. I know this conversation and your family story, Kristen's story, and your message is important for teens, for parents, and just for friends and anyone that's listening. So let's start by talking a little about Kristen. Can you share a bit about her, her passions and interests, her relationships with friends and family, and how Kristen lived her life? Yes, I'd love to do that. You know, Kristen was, um, she was very smart and truly, I would say, just a lovely person. I mean, she, she really was the total package and 
And I think back about her and the things she used to do and say that she had a, a really fun sense of humor. She was very creative in her ideas and loved to express herself through poetry and, and prose. She also dabbled in photography, and I think she was very good at composing things. And so that was kind of one of her many loves. But she was a real bright spot in so many lives for so many people beyond her family. It's really uh, one of the few people you meet in your life where you say everybody really loved her. And you know, she loved her family, and she was very loyal to her friends. Uh, she'd do anything for any one of them. And, and then in terms of just interest, uh, she was accomplished at, at equestrian horse riding. She wanted to get back to that after she finished college and was looking at that summer as an opportunity to maybe get back to that. Plus, she had a job lined up with General Mills at that time. So that, that was a really big deal, but it, it wasn't going to start for a while. So she had a lot of things she wanted to catch up on. But besides horses, she liked to play the flute and she did it very beautifully, played like an angel. And so, you know, in so many ways, her life was really taking off and, and we were very mm -hmm. proud of her. Yeah, she's, she was great. After she had been murdered, People spoke about her bright smile and how she would light up a room when she came in. And so she was a big part of people's lives, very positive force, Jerusha. And you really get a feel for who she was in the stories. I loved in the book how you sh shared stories from when she was like a baby to when, uh, as she got older, how her passions changed. She loves animals and you can just get a real feel for how much she really loved life and what a great friend and sister and daughter she was. Yeah, she really was. I, I didn't mention, uh, we've always had cats in our house over the years. And, and so when she was a little girl, she was just a couple years old. We bought her uh, a Siamese cat. And my wife actually participated in naming the cat. We named the cat Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And after The Great Gatsby, my wife's favorite book. But uh, Kristen and Gatsby were un inseparable. And so they would always take naps together and they would always kind of play. And it, you could just see a relationship there. It's very one-on-one. -on -one. In the book, you begin telling the story from the day you received a call from a detective who wanted to talk to you in person. And you mentioned your wife's special motherly powers and how after that first call you received from police, she instantly knew something was wrong with Kristen. So the thing was, it was June 3rd, 2005, a Friday, but I received a call from police detectives that evening. This detective who called me, a woman who called me, who was she told me she needed to meet with me face to face and she needed to tell me something. And I asked her what it was. And she says, well, I can't do it over the phone. I have to do it in person. Before I figured out what I was going to do about that, I got her phone number and I asked her if I could call her back and called my wife at that time, who was with my son and they were visiting some friends. There was a high school graduation party. So I was driving along and I called her and I explained what was going on as best I knew it, which was barely anything. But when I, I got into it, my wife kept saying, well, what's it about? What's it about? And I said, well, they won't tell me. And she immediately said to me that she thought it was about Kristen. But she was very sure of that. And at that time, I was in complete disbelief that it had anything to do with Kristen at all. I mean, I kept thinking, why would local police be calling me about my daughter who was in Philadelphia? Now, we live outside of Baltimore, and Baltimore and Philadelphia are about 125 miles apart. So it made no sense to me that local police would be contacting me. I figured if it happened with Kristen or to Kristen, that it would probably be Philadelphia police calling me. So I didn't line it up, but my wife figured it out immediately. When I wrote the book and I got to that chapter, which is, of course is very early on in the book, I thought of, the, of that phrase, special motherly powers. And I thought there was a connection that she had to Kristen that I knew I didn't have. She was so sure. And she kept coming back to that. 
you know, I, I don't know what that's all about. I know I don't have that type of connection, but I sort of attributed to carrying a child maybe for nine months. Uh, Michelle was a great mom way before Kristen was born. She always was very careful about what she ate and she drank and what her weight was and checking with their doctor. We had all kinds of baby books all over the house and magazines and everything else. So, so she was a great mom. And I think that she was just so tuned into Kristen that she knew. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the sort of like tragic uh, parts of when I was reading the book, I got a real feel for your family and how loving and supportive and um, that ever since you said, like you just said, before Kirsten was born, how much love um, that a parent puts into their child to see that special day when she graduated. And now you're about to see her sort of soar and do all the amazing things that you knew that she was capable of. Kristen was killed three weeks after graduating from university. Um, In the book, you reveal that Kristen wanted to break up with her controlling boyfriend, and he couldn't handle it. She was stabbed 55 times in her apartment and left in her bed to bleed to death. Back in 2005, there wasn't much awareness about the issue of dating violence. So when was the first time you heard the words dating violence? The first comment I wanted to make, based upon what you just said, was that it's true what this man did to her was just off the charts. Mm-hmm. It was so bad that the the uh, prosecutor of the case held off telling that to us specifically uh, the number of times Kristen was stabbed. She held off for about two months before we ever got that detail. On the subject of dating violence and knowing that, I had never heard that term before. Of course, I'd heard of what domestic violence was, and we can talk about that too, because my my understanding of that was anything but thorough. My first thought was that this was purely and simply murder, and Kristen was killed by that person, but I didn't see how this particular tragedy fit into a bigger picture, which is the whole dating violence issue. Really knew nothing about that at that time. Uh, I would never have thought about dating violence. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, my short definition is that now that I know, uh, but dating violence is an ongoing series of of events that center on one person's power and control and dominance over another person. That's the backstory to what happened, but I only knew what happened. I figured they just had a bad day or a bad evening or something like that. And this guy lost his mind, I guess, and did what he did. But I didn't know that, that there were perhaps weeks and months that led up to that event. That could have maybe, if they had been understood better, maybe this never would have happened. But but I heard about the term dating violence. And then soon after that, I remember the first time I heard intimate partner violence, again, from the prosecutor. The prosecutor in this case was a woman who represented uh, the case, you know, the, you know, represented Kristen for that matter, and the, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania where this happened. But it was foreign to me, foreign to my family, dating violence, really, uh, you know, it was like, what, what is that? I just, just didn't know. And, and most parents, I think, don't know. Yeah. Even, even today, 15 years later, I think most people would say, I'm not sure what that is. Some people think it's bullying or something like that. That's a really good point, that a lot of people don't really understand what dating violence is or what, even what intimate partner violence is. Sure. But when you, when you think back to Kristen's relationship with Nick, were there any warning signs you understand now that would indicate this was an unhealthy relationship? The thing is that's that's so uh, perplexing about this is that there were plenty of warning signs, but nobody saw that again in terms of how it fits into a pattern or it fits into a bigger story. Her friends saw many of the classic warning signs of what was 
an unhealthy relationship. Some people might call it a toxic relationship. I mean, they would see his controlling and they would, in his dominant behavior at different times, they'd see things he did and they just thought, well, I don't like that or I don't like him. But it would be like, uh, like seeing things as almost like isolated things that took place, but not seeing that it adds up to something that's really there and, and really um, could be fatal, could be deadly. But he would do different things. You know, he would, he would sometimes check her cell phone or her computer to see who had communicated with her. Sometimes she'd come in and, and into the room and discover that. And we only know that because she told one of her closest friends. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I heard that he did would be that he would go into her social media accounts like Facebook and he would go in on her instant messenger and pretend as if he were her. And then he would contact one of her friends and ask the friend what they thought of him. Mm-hmm. She would be somewhere else at the time, not knowing he's doing this. And just say, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think of Nick? You know, uh, you think he's a good guy? It's sneaky, it's insidious, and of course, very wrong. Mm-hmm. The other thing that he exhibited, and we actually did get a little taste of this, was his extreme jealousy. He didn't really want her being around anybody else but him. That could be our family and definitely her friends, always trying to separate her from her friends. So here's a guy who's not only trying to control her, but even trying to control her friends. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the, if, you, if you'd like, I can talk about what some of the classic warning signs are. Yeah, sure. Now, these are a little bit textbook. As I go through these, I think it's worthwhile to kind of like keep in mind they all fit under a heading, which is power and control over another person. Mm -hmm. So for instance, constant put downs. Somebody, you know, you could be in high school, you could be at work, you could be anywhere and somebody comes up and gives you, you know, gives you a hard time about something. You don't maybe like it, but if it happens all the time, it's a bother. And in a relationship, which is supposed to be a loving relationship, somebody who's constantly putting down the other person Somewhere in their mind, they think that they're controlling that person, meaning like I'm better than you, mm-hmm. or I know things you don't know, or whatever that is. But the constant put downs, there's a purpose there. It's control. Controlling or dominant behavior, we've kind of talked about already, but that's usually number two on the list. But it's just somebody who just keeps finding ways to get their way about things. And so, therefore, you don't. Somebody who checks your cell phone to see who you've been texting, who you've been calling. Uh, checking your emails without your permission. Again, just kind of snooping around and trying mm-hmm. to get an idea, you know, who you've been in communication with. Jealousy, possessiveness, we've talked about a little bit already, uh, isolating you from your family, friends. I know uh, of cases where a guy did his best to even isolate this this young woman he was dating, even from her pets at home. You know, cats uh-huh. are stupid, you know, that kind of thing. Explosive temper at different times, but that's just becomes this this other thing that the, that the abused person has to deal with. Mm-hmm. So it's all about what the one person wants and not the other. Checking up on you when you're not with that person, okay? So checking up with text messages and cell phones. This guy did this to a fairly well with Kristen, but making you feel no one would ever want you. Mm-hmm. So it would be a statement like, you know, you're actually, you're just so lucky that I'm dating you because I'll tell you, you know, I can't think of too many other people who would want you, you know, that, who would be interested in you at all. Another variation on that is is finding new and improved ways to underscore the fact that you can't seem to get anything right. Mm-hmm. You know, so what happens is your self-worth and your self-esteem keeps going down. On the other hand, you become more reliant on that person because you think like, wow, you know, at least he's hanging in there with me, even though I'm kind of damaged goods, right? Always telling you what to do kind of fits in there. And last but not least is preventing you from doing what you want to do. One of the things that Kristen 
was told by her friends is you need to get some space from this guy. Mm -hmm. He was really trying very hard to do that at different times, but he, he always managed to come in and really upset the, what she was trying to do. You know, it was all about him. Yeah. I think the warning signs that you listed are really important for everyone listening to really take, to be aware of and to be mindful of. Um, and I think what you, a lot of the uh, warning signs that you talked about demonstrate just how psychologically manipulative abuse can be. And a lot of times people don't understand that. Hours before uh, Kristen was murdered, she had been exchanging text messages with Nick, who was upset because she was spending the day with her friends. In the book, you share one of those exchanges. You wrote, at 8.53 p.m., Nick texted Kristen in an angry mix of caps and lowercase. His message was, if she loved him, she should have paid more attention to him that day. He was feeling dissed by her, even though she had made it clear multiple times that she was trying to enjoy her last few hours with friends who were moving on to other parts of the country. Yes. So the constant calls and text messages, her lack of being able to have space or time with her friends, these are all huge warning signs that a lot of people may dismiss. Can you explain how these warning signs can begin to creep into a relationship? Typically, people who do this to other people are practiced at this. You know, by the time somebody gets into their teens, by the time they get into their 20s or beyond, they've done this. This is typically not the first time they've tried this on someone else. So they, they, become, they become good at it in, in the worst sense. But it's an important question because, um, you know, I, I've said to so many people, if, if some of the behavior that's taken place later on in the relationship had happened in the beginning of the relationship, then that relationship would probably end immediately. Mm -hmm. So it creeps in gently, slowly. It's really important. If you know the warning signs and you say, wait a minute, that's, that's that stuff I've been reading about. You know, that's that pattern that I heard on this podcast or whatever that is. I can tell you as a, um, as a parent or as a friend, you want to believe this can happen to yourself and you want to believe this can happen to your child and you want to believe that this can happen to a friend because it can. And, it, mm -hmm. and, it, and not just because it happened in my family, but you know, once it happened to us, that actually gave some people in our family, other people in our family, kind of, I guess they felt like they had permission to tell me what was going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I know of three or four other instances in our family, you know, to my cousins and their kids and stuff like that, that all of a sudden they would reach out to me and they hadn't reached out to anybody else in the family. You know, Bill's been there, so I guess I, I can talk with him. As a parent or friend, though, you want to keep lines of communication open with that person who you think is, is uh, being abused or is in an unhealthy relationship. You want to do as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You want to know what's going on in their lives, of course. I mean, if it's, especially if it's your child, but if it's your best friend, same thing. So if you do detect that your child's in an unhealthy relationship, my advice is that you want to talk about it as best you can. The key is not to interrogate. The thing is to try to get that person to express their feelings. Mm -hmm. you know? Great point. But what I tell people is, you might have to practice this a little bit, but you have to become a great listener, not a great interrogator, a great listener. And you want to encourage the conversation to come along. For instance, you might say, well, okay, so you're, you're dating. So this actually happened with my wife and my daughter, but my wife did not know about the warning signs, so she didn't follow it up. But she said at one point, well, what do you think about this guy? Tell me about this relationship. And Kristen said, well, I'll tell you, mom, it's not the perfect relationship, okay? It's just not. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the conversation went too much past that. But my wife, whose name is Michelle, Michelle looked at it as, well, I guess this guy's going to be on the way out. And 
this will end and Kristen will be graduating soon and let's talk about other things. Mm-hmm. And knowing what we know now, yes, you would pursue that conversation because you'd say, well, look, tell me, tell me more about that. What do you mean it's not perfect? Or you might even say, well, what would be a perfect relationship in your mind to reinforce that in, in, uh, in your friend or your, in your, or your child's mind? But, but you can say things like, How did, well, okay, you know, if you heard of something that happened that seemed to be disturbing, I mean, you might say things like, well, how did that make you feel? Or how long has this been going on? Or what do your friends think about this relationship? Mm -hmm. But you don't want to be tough. You don't want to be a judger. You don't want the person who you think is being abused or or is in a bad relationship. You don't want that person to think that at the end of everything they express, you're going to pounce on that person and say, well, what, what what are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you don't realize it, but you might become in their mind, the next abuser in the story, Mm -hmm. because this person's kind of doing it. And then all of a sudden, wow, now I got mom on my case. And and also remember, it's not about your feelings. It's about your child or your friend's feeling. You're trying to help them out. You're not trying to make yourself feel better about it. Mm -hmm. Such really good points that you bring up. Um, One of the great ones that you said was, at the beginning of a relationship, you don't see those signs necessarily. Um, By the time you start to, um, the abuser starts to manifest some of those um, behaviors and you realize, oh, I'm, this person's being abusive to me. You may not have that exact language, but you know that it's not a healthy relationship. It could be months later. It could be years later. It could even be after marriage, for example. Um, that's one of the things that we, when we talk to students about it, um, on a first date, no one's going to say, hi, my name is, and I'm going to be very controlling. I'm going to be abusive, that it doesn't happen that way. Um, And another great point that you highlighted was just the importance of everyone having this information. The information isn't just for females to say, okay, these are the warning signs. So now don't don't find yourself in an abusive relationship, but it's really for everyone to be aware of this. Because sometimes when there's emotions there, you may be blind to certain behaviors, um, whereas your friends can pick up on it or your family members can pick up on it. And it's really important the way that they approach it, like you said, in a non-judgmental way. I'm here for you and you can talk about it, not, well, you need to leave him or you need to do this and we want to give all of our advice and uh, ban them from talking to the person that's not very helpful. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, our situation is different from a lot of them because we did not know of this ongoing relationship so we didn't have kind of a play-by-play over the course of time. We had barely heard about him. I mean, honestly, the first time I ever met him was the day of the graduation, which mm-hmm. coincidentally was the last day I saw Kristen alive. The key thing in here is that, yes, you know, if I were listening to my child talking about something and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so bad, I want it to end immediately, but it's not going to end immediately. You're not going to be able to force your will you're not going to be able to drive your own conclusions that hard. If you try to, you probably fail. Because what happens so often, and people know this who have kids, when you try to force your will on someone, who, especially in their teens or approaching 20 or early 20s even, you try to force your will, it kind of makes them feel like they have to defend their position. Mm-hmm. So you wind up accidentally driving them to the person who you're actually mm-hmm. trying to separate them from. Mm-hmm. And then if your child or friend goes to that person and said, yeah, you know, my mother uh, really didn't think I should see you. That's a full alert for that person. You know, that person's thinking, well, I got to do a little more work on this mom situation here. Mom's wrecking this. Or if it's the friend, you know, like my friends don't really like you. That's actually a victory for the abuser to begin mm-hmm. with, because that probably means they'll go away. Now they don't want to be around me. And since I'm with you all the time, they won't be around you either. 
but it also tells that person, well, we need to keep that friend out of the picture or we're going to make it difficult to get together. Well, I don't like her either. It's all very tricky. It requires more information. It requires planning. So what I do with people all the time, and I'm not just passing the buck, but I say, look, if you feel like you've got a situation with your child or your friend, you need to get more information about this type of thing. You probably don't know enough right now to fix it yourself. You want to be that person who saves your friend or your child, right? You really need to get in touch with a helpline like the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They're everywhere and you'll get great advice from people who are trained. And, and a lot of people who work those lines are people who have been in those relationships. So mm-hmm. they really know what they're talking about. And I guarantee you, they know more than your friends and they know more than your parents and they know more than your teachers in school if you go to your teachers. That's a really good point. In the book, you highlight specific circumstances where Nick's constant desire to have Kristen's time and attention began to affect her other relationships. One of those circumstances was during a planned weekend getaway with a friend, which was actually designed to get some space away from him. But his tactics of control, manipulation, and guilting resulted in Kristen having a fight with her close friend. Are there any tips you can share for a friend who's concerned about their friend's relationship? Samantha shows up in this book quite a lot. She was she was one of Kristen's closest friends, if not her closest friend, right up until the end. But she was trying very hard to get Kristen to get some space from Nick. And she was telling her that all the time, harping about it, if anything. So what happened is that on Memorial Day weekend, last weekend in May, she planned this weekend so that she would come and pick up Kristen where she was and then drive east from Pennsylvania into New Jersey to the Jersey Shore and go to a house that was there that Samantha's parents had. And they were going to spend a long weekend. Mm -hmm. So it was this nice start Friday night, go through the weekend. Kristen had graduated from college. Samantha was a year younger, so she didn't graduate from college, but she was out of school for a while. So this could have been great. And the idea was, wow, how wonderful to have three plus days where we don't have this guy in the picture and we can just kind of like read a book or talk about things and and enjoy each other's company because they're great friends. So Nick wasn't going to have that happen. So he started in with texting and calling Kristen because he had no interest in her being away from him at all. He, He had to really up his game a lot. So he started in on Friday night with this and it continued into Saturday. And then he sent her an email, which she read, which went into this sort of sob story about, you know, I kind of reached the point where I don't know if we're going to work out. This is him talking in this email. Mm -hmm. And he kind of apologized for some of his behavior. And, uh, you know, you'll probably have a great life without me. This kind of like boo-hoo sob story. Again, in this case, manipulation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the text messages were, and I don't know what the calls were, but one way or another, she she gave in, and he basically got in his car midday Saturday and drove to the Jersey Shore, which is a pretty good distance, and picked her up and pulled her out of that weekend, and that was that. That was the end of it, and it upset Samantha, who had tried so hard for Kristen that they both had a big argument Sunday of that weekend. And Mm -hmm. Samantha couldn't remember who hung up on who, but they didn't speak again. But as a friend, you know, you, you want to know what you're dealing with. And the only way that you can, again, is to stop for a while, focus on this, understand what isolation is all about, understand it fits into a bigger picture uh, and and try to anticipate things, you know, that so that you can gain some advantage when these things come along, right? Mm -hmm. Now you really want to be ready and 
And that's really one of the key reasons I wrote the book. And it, and it includes not only real life examples of these things I'm talking about and we're talking about today, but it also gives you some ideas of things that you can do that are not that hard to do, but, but are very necessary. Uh, you had previously uh, mentioned this when we were talking, but the last time you saw Kristen was three weeks before her death, and that was for her university graduation. But the last time you communicated with her was just a few hours before she was killed. She had been emailing you. Um, and in one of her last emails, this is part of what Kristen wrote. Uh, she said, as far as Nick, we got in a fight tonight because he was acting really jealous about the fact I hung with my friends, Sean and Austin all day. There are people who care about me and our friends that I want to keep far into the future. And Nick didn't seem to understand that and kept calling on not trusting me all day. It was really annoying. He acts great when things are going well and when we are doing things together. But when the tables turn and I want to spend time with my friends, he can't seem to handle it. I yelled at him tonight because he was acting mad that I had spent the whole day with my friends and was planning on seeing a movie with them tonight. Uh, you then wrote back to Kirsten in an email and said, if you really like Nick and you do, you need to reassure him that he's important to you, but your friends are important too. They're not more important than he, but they're a part of your life that you're not going to forego just for him. The fact that he's a little jealous is a good thing. At times it can be a royal pain, but it's a good thing. He likes you a lot. He wants to be with you. That beats the alternative. At the center of it all, you need to level with him. He needs to know what friends mean to you, and he needs to know where he stands with you. Just be honest with Nick, and it should work out. You write in the book that if you had any training in this kind of behavior and what the underlying story was, you would have done things differently, that the warning signs were present, but you missed them. You know, I look at that. I, I, I sometimes have a difficult time characterizing myself writing that email. You know, I could say, boy, was I naive, but I just didn't have the tools. You know, I sort of looked at it like it was a, what you might call normal give and take relationship, which it was not. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know any better. And I guess I made, you know, I did make that assumption. I don't have to guess. But I just didn't know enough. And, and I, I'm glad you read that email. You know, one of the things that I've done was print it out and then circle all the warning signs that are in there. I can point to at least seven. There might be more. One of them was acting really jealous, kept calling and not trusting me all day, really annoying. He was acting mad that I spent the day with my friends. I had to tell him I needed space, getting more and more controlling, and not giving me space to be me. Every one of those is a warning sign, jumping right mm -hmm. off that page. But I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the background. I've had 15 years to understand this. It didn't take 15 years to understand it, but I've had so much time. If somebody would have handed me this and said, do you see any problems here? I'd say, oh my God, it's loaded with problems. Her last email to me, this was the next to last one. Mm -hmm. This was sent at 11.33. I wrote back to her, I think it was 12.01. And then there was another one after that, that I believe was 2.27 in the morning on June 3rd. She had the phrase in there, was really was really annoying all day. You know, there was that. And, and uh, the one sent at 2.27, he reappeared at her apartment only just a, from the best police could put together about a half an hour later. Mm -hmm. And then an argument ensued and she got killed. And honestly, I saw the 2.27 in the morning email and wrote back to her the next day. I wrote back at around seven or eight in the morning. And it was another one of these nice dad type of emails, uh, which was kind of like things will work out and it'll be just great. And here I am writing an email that someone who'd passed away hours before. You know, the thing is about it is awareness is really number one. And it seems so basic 
And so many people, so many parents, so many friends, school administrators, they didn't know much about this in, in 2005, as you already said. But I don't know if many parents really get it today. You know, nobody figures this is going to happen where they are. But parents need to know that it really does exist, it's prevalent, and they have to have some kind of a fundamental education about it to get it, mm-hmm. to understand those different dynamics and warning signs. And if you really want to be able to interpret the evidence that's right there in front of you sometimes, which I, I obviously come out and admit that, that I, I missed it completely. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Many people don't realize that one of the most dangerous times is when one of the partners wants to break up. You say it's a critical time where things can escalate as it did in the case of your daughter into something that was unspeakable. Breaking up with a controlling and abusive person, that can be something that's extremely dangerous. Are there any tips that you can offer on how to safely end a relationship? So if you begin with the premise that it's an unhealthy relationship, it's, it's not a healthy relationship. It's not a lot of give and take. It's not really a lot of love. We're talking about a relationship that has control and dominance and a lot of unhealthy behavior, a lot of hard feelings, a lot of fear, a lot going on there. So what happens, therefore, is breaking up is typically the most dangerous time. And, and you can imagine that, that if you had a person who was abusive, who in this case, of course, is a controlling partner in the relationship, and that person finds out that, that in this case, his dominance over the other person is being challenged, then you this can see how this person becomes angry and, and is looking at it like, hey, you know, I make the decision this person feels the need to take some kind of decisive action, you know, violence. That's why things are thrown and people are pushed around and hurt and things like that. You know, this, this person's used to the idea of I get my way. You know, I'm, I'm the person who decides that. It's my decision alone. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how violence enters into this. So mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to breaking up, one of the first pieces of advice I actually solicited was from the prosecutor this was a couple months into this, but I said, well, okay, in a relationship like this must have been that my daughter was in with this Nick guy, what would you have told her if she had asked you, well, how should I break up with this guy? And kind of off the cuff, she just said, well, I would have said, get someone else's phone and call him up, make it a short call, less than a minute, and say, you know what? I can't do this. We're done. We'll never go back together. And that's it. So, you know, don't call me, don't come by, we're finished. And then if you can, get away for two weeks, just go, because that person's going to be roaring mad and probably something will happen and you don't want to be there when it happens. But the idea is take yourself out of the story as best you can. I mean, I, I did talk with somebody within the last six months who was a high school senior and I said, it has to be like zero tolerance. 
-hmm. zero contact. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we go to the same high school. And I said, you need to tell them we can't talk about this. We're not an item. You know, whatever you find to say, don't call me, don't contact me. I will not pick up the phone and don't go working on my friends. It's basically like, and avoid that person. You know, you, you have to avoid that person. You have to take, you have to find a new way to get to school and get home. And you need to tell everybody you know what's going on, that this person could be dangerous because that person will find every possible way to start chipping away to get back into the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is a very dangerous time. And the other thing is, again, I keep saying the same thing, which is get professional help on this. You know, find people, domestic violence agencies, national hotlines. There are counselors in schools oftentimes you can talk with. Before breaking up, you want to plan it out. You want to think it out. Tell people, I'm going to break up, and there's probably going to be some bumpiness that's coming after this. Mm -hmm. If you feel there's danger and you've never really talked with your parents, I'd say talk with your parents because this guy could show up at the door. And I know of instances like that where someone didn't talk to her parents and the guy came over and it seemed nice and the mom went off to do laundry and dad was still at work. And when mom went off to do laundry, this guy attacked her and she was killed. And this mm -hmm. happened. It's scary as can be. I know it's super unpleasant. It's horrifying. Yeah. And sometimes if you don't feel comfortable talking to your parents, just remember that safety is of the utmost importance. So that's what matters more than maybe feeling like a bit ashamed or embarrassed or you don't want to share that. That's really important. There was something key that you highlighted several times in the book, and that was the belief that you once had and that many people do, that domestic violence happens to other people. The statistic of one in three, that one in three women and girls will experience violence or abuse in their lifetime, people often hear this. Um, it's something that I say a lot of times in classrooms, but even after hearing that, I can see in people's faces that they think, well, that one in the three, that's going to happen to other people. It's not going to happen to my friends, my family, not in my neighborhood. That the one happens to those people over there. It happens in rough neighborhoods, to people that are maybe low income, people from broken homes. Maybe they have substance abuse issues. Um, and we know that domestic violence happens to men as well at a lower rate. But men can also be in abusive relationships. And you share a story um, of that in your book. In the book you write, Kristen was a strong woman and couldn't be easily manipulated. She experienced no violence in her home or among her friends. She believed that people were basically good and told the truth. She was nurturing, caring, and found beauty in the world. She met the wrong guy and was wooed with gifts and dinners while simultaneously being subjected to lies, emotional abuse, isolation, and ultimately power and control. The problem was that she did not recognize these red flags. Why? Because she had no experience with these behaviors and no education to allow her to recognize the warning signs of an abusive relationship. She also didn't know how to safely end a relationship with someone. So what is the danger in these assumptions and beliefs about who domestic violence happens to? And why do you think relationship health education is important for everyone? The whole idea here is that that education on this subject leads to empowerment. Because what happens is when these things happen, they're coming at you at odd times. They are packaged up in odd ways. And you don't necessarily fit them together and see a pattern. You don't see it's part of a bigger thing, a domestic violence thing or dating violence thing. But getting back to your point about where it happens, because 
if I had been interviewed sometime before that about this coming our way, I'd say, well, I try to find a nice way of saying, well, we don't really live in that kind of a neighborhood. You know, I don't know of anybody that anything like this has happened to because because at that time I didn't. I know plenty now. Mm-hmm. There was a, a book I heard about a few years ago. I, I met the author. It's copyrighted in 1997 and it's called Ending Domestic Violence. Very basic title. It's based upon very thorough research about the subject. In the book, they pinpointed that the stereotypes and preconceived notions that most of us hold in our minds are almost all incorrect. The idea that that this happens within specific races or ethnic backgrounds or religions or whatever that is, neighborhoods, it's all wrong. It happens all races and all ethnic backgrounds equally. And equally is an interesting term because you do think about the rough parts of town or you think of certain neighborhoods or certain groups of people, maybe, but it's wrong. It happens equally everywhere. I still find that a confounding thing that I have to take that leap of faith. The fact that you think that it doesn't happen around here, it has kind of nothing to do with us. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing, but, it, but I don't really think we need to worry about it. What happens is it creates a false sense of security for most people. They think it won't happen in their neighborhood or to their child. They're wrong. Happens equally. Now, Kristen, as you mentioned, Jerusha, she was a trusting person. She would never imagine that someone she cared for would ever do anything like this or hurt her. Mm-hmm. And here we are. I mean, she was completely wrong, obviously. The truth, is ba- the truth of it all is just, it's backed by research. It happens equally. That might take a leap of faith, but you want to be careful. And I, I've done that. I mean, I'm there. I, I, I believe it's true. So what do you do with all this information? the sake of those you care about, you have to put some effort into learning about the warning signs and about unhealthy relationships because they'll tip you off. Mm-hmm. If you were to be talking with somebody and you hear bits and pieces and now you kind of say, wait a minute, that sounds like it's fitting into that power and control thing I've been hearing about. Mm-hmm. Now you can see yourself asking those leading questions about, wow, I mean, what, what other things are going on? You're right. One in three women, that statistic is absolutely real. And if you think about it, I'm not sure exactly. I've heard that research coming out of different places. It always comes up the same way. But if you think of it, that's a crazy high number. That Now that's physical violence, but there's also emotional violence. Mm-hmm. So if that's one in three, you have to figure emotional violence is all of those people and more people. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are just there are a lot of mind games that people who are abusive play on other people. Mm-hmm. It becomes just part of life with that person. And it's it's disturbing. The key here is, is to get more information about it, mm-hmm. search it out. I mean, if you really do care about somebody, then you really do care to get the information. Yeah, I think that's really important for everyone to realize that domestic violence and dating violence can happen to anyone. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what economic background. And that's why it's important for everyone to be aware of these warning signs and to have relationship health education, I think is really important. And one of the things that I say in classrooms, when I say one in three, to make it more tangible, well, how many females are in this room? And if you're a male, or how many females do you know in your life? So that everyone can see that, like you said, you didn't know anyone before, but now there's a whole lot of people that you know who have experienced some sort of dating abuse or domestic violence. And sometimes it's something that's not talked about enough that is sort of hidden, but it is something that everyone is affected by. And that's why it's really important that we have these conversations and talk about why warning signs are important for everyone to be mindful of. 
in the book uh, at the ending, there's a template that you go over that you say that abusers follow. Can you explain that template? Yes. You know, I, I have had many conversations with victims and survivors and people who have studied this. In keeping notes about this, I started to realize that there was a real live template, meaning that there was kind of a step by step by step, and then it repeats itself that abusers put on the abused victims who are, again, supposed to be somebody they care about and, and uh, say they love in most cases. So, mm -hmm. But it's really a five-step template you'll probably be able to identify with some of it, either because of things happening in your own life or somebody who is a child of yours again, or a friend or somebody like that. But every step is taken by abusers. So it begins with, if you're writing this down, you wanna put a number one and put down storybook romance. Okay, so this person enters your life and oftentimes if you've dated before, you uh, say, wow, I met the most wonderful guy. I mean, he took me to places I've never been to before. I used to think about going. Mm -hmm. um, in one case I mentioned in the book where somebody went out with this guy, had this great evening, and then the next day she goes into work, and before you know it, two bouquets of roses show up, this wonderful card. And everybody in the place is like, oh, my God, I've never gotten two bouquets of roses. Just Prince Charming here. Storybook romance. And there are other examples of that. But wow, he always vacuums his car and washes it before he picks me up. You know, it's like wh whatever... It, Whatever it is, it, it has to be, it's got to be big. It's got to make an impression. Think, wow, you know, I'm really attracted to this person. I want to see him again. Number two, though, which is subtle and insidious, is isolation. Now it's subtle. But what happens is that person knows that it's going to work out a lot better. In this case, I keep using the male-female paradigm. It doesn't always have to be that way. Mm -hmm. uh, can be the other way. Can be male-male, female-female. But, but this still holds up. But isolation, so isolation, as we've talked about here and there, isolation is somebody who wants to isolate you from your friends, from your family, and from those things that you used to like and enjoy. It's all about, the idea is it's all about me. You are dating me. I'm it. I'm the beginning. I'm the middle. I'm the end. Isolation. So that person will find ways to book up your calendar, morning, noon, and night if possible. And it's all about phone calls with me, seeing me, doing things with me, going out to eat with me, all of those things. So you just start to realize that, you know, he kind of doesn't like my friends, but I like him. So I guess I have to kind of like dial my friends back a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's number two. Number three are threats of violence. Threats of violence are just those glimpses where you think, wow, you know, this guy can, this guy can get unhappy if I talk about that subject. Doesn't want me talking about my family too much, maybe. Threats of violence can be, um, uh, he gets loud about certain things. You're in the car, maybe slams on the brakes. So you wind up jerking forward and he shakes his finger in your face and says, look, you know, I don't like you talking about that. That's not good. That really made me mad. I had to slap you for saying something like that. Now that, again, that's not going to happen on the first date. But over the course mm -hmm. of time, you'll get that impression that if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, there could be a punishment involved. If it's going great, there'll be rewards. Everything's wonderful when it's not kind of hints of punishment. Number four, actual violence. I really don't think that it got to that place with my daughter until that fateful night. But of course, in many relationships, it does get to that point where somebody gets a punch or somebody gets pushed or somebody gets pushed up against a wall or something like that or something's thrown and then what happens after that, number five, is under the heading of convincing apology. Somebody says, look, okay, 
that was really bad. Now, maybe it's some high school guy. He says, look, that was bad. That'll never happen again. You know how badly I tried out for that team. I mean, I spent the whole summer lifting weights, you know, running up hills, doing all these things. I did everything I was supposed to do. We got down to the last day before we're cutting people off the team, and then he cuts me. This team went three and 10 last year. They were lousy. And darn if he didn't keep the guys from last year, and he cuts me. So yeah, I was upset, and I'm sorry if I took it out on you. Can't you see my side of it? It's not only just a, an apology, it's a convincing apology. Now what happens next in those scenarios, and I'm sure people listening in can think of other ones, it goes back to storybook romance. What do we do? Look, hey look, there's that restaurant in Little Italy, why don't we go there? You love the so-and-so, you wanna go see that show, I'm gonna get us front row tickets. And you're thinking, wow, well, that would be nice. He's going to get you some jewelry. He's going to get you a better cell phone. I know people have been married for 20 years. They've been through this template probably hundreds of times. I know of people who uh, they wind up coming back to work on Monday. They didn't look the same way as they did Friday because they, they're, they got extra makeup on their black eye and they're driving a nice new car. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a detective to figure out if you know a little bit about that person's story, what happened. But that storybook romance, followed by even more isolation, followed by different threats of violence, actual violence, convincing apology. There are people married 20 or 30 years. I've had instances where I've talked with people. I talked with a, a different high school senior on the phone one morning, and she took me through how great a guy this guy has been and all the things that they've done and they've gone to football games together and all this great stuff. And, you know, just, he's like Prince Charming and all this stuff is just great. On the other hand, between him ruining friendships for her or her friends finally giving up on her, she's isolated. I mean, he's the whole show. She can barely be around her own family members because they've given up on her. You know, they've said, you've got to break up with this guy. And she hadn't all kinds of threats of violence. I mentioned slamming on the brakes. It was from that story. Mm -hmm. And actual violence, you know, she'd been hit a couple times, but she, he didn't leave a mark, at least as yet. I said, do you think at the ripe old age of 18 and then you're going to college next year, do you think this guy's the best you can do from this point on? I mean, can you imagine being around this guy or dating this guy through college? All the great things college can be for people. Some people mm -hmm. feel it was the best time of their lives. I mean, do you think there's anybody else there that, that wouldn't give you the hard times like this guy does? Imagine for a moment that somehow you decided to marry this guy. How are you going to deal with maybe one day having kids if you go there? Living in a house, houses have problems. Cars have problems. There's health issues in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, all this stuff. You want to be stuck with this guy the rest of your life? But ask yourself the question, is this guy at the ripe old age of 18, you've, been, you've known him for a year, dated him for a year, do you think he's the best you can do? And I know from her mother, that thought of, is he the best you can do, turned it in her mind. Somewhere in there, she thought, you know what? You're right. I got, I've, got to, I've got to move out of this. I think that's really good for people to understand that abuse uh, happens. There is that cycle. And sometimes people can go through that cycle, like you said, hundreds of times, because there is that sort of manipulation that's happening where like you said it starts off with that everything's great that fairy tale romance and you know he's the one for me um that we sort of buy in and from media where he's the prince charming and then we you sort of get to that tension building stage where something's not right i kind of i'm not gonna 
bring up certain topics because it kind of angers him. I'm going to maybe start to isolate myself. I'm not going to go by my family or my friends. I'm not going to hang out with them because every time I do, you know, he gets really upset. So maybe if I stop going there, we can like remain in that romance fairy tale stage. But eventually something will happen where he just get, becomes triggered, not because you've done anything to trigger him off. It's just that person has their own issue. And he there's a big blow up could be a big emotional, big emotionally abusive blow up or it could involve physical violence as well. And yes. then after, like you said, it's the I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. And shower you with gifts and then you feel hopeful. Okay, well, he said he's sorry, it's not going to happen again. You feel like, okay, now we're going to go back to how great things are. And he's just a great person. People just don't understand. You know, he has some trust issues or whatever, but you know, we can make this work. And then you go back into that fairy tale until eventually the whole thing starts again, where you start to feel that tension start to build. So it's really important for everyone to understand whether you're in the cycle or you're witnessing it. That's why it can be hard for someone to sort of escape that pattern because it's so seductive in many ways. It really is because you can remember when the good days were there, you know, when you remember the great times you've had. And so there's, you keep thinking, well, you know, I mean, if I just kind of weather the storm a little bit, eventually it'll clear, the sun will come out and it'll be just like it was on those good times because I've seen those good times with this person. But maybe you haven't really thought it through in terms of like, I just went through the template. This is a bit of a merry-go-round situation. And at some points on the merry-go-round, it's it's very painful, but you have a feeling when it comes around a little bit more, you know, he'll kind of go back to being that great guy I met back in the beginning. And a lot of um, people get stuck in that cycle because they think, well, I can change him. Or um, like you mentioned before, that this is just happening because, you know, he's a bit stressed. In a healthy relationship and, and in any relationship, there's always going to be stress. So the fact that somebody has a bit of a difficult time at work isn't a reason or an excuse for them to treat you poorly. In a healthy relationship, you come home, you talk about it. Um, if there's something that you disagree on, you, you're able to talk about it. It doesn't have to be that that person's trying to control you or that they're taking out their anger on you. Those are still warning signs. So we need to be mindful that we're not dismissing what are really huge red flags or warning signs that this is an abusive relationship. And when we talk about domestic violence, the word violence makes most people assume that domestic violence or abuse means only physical violence. But it's important for everyone to know that you can be in an abusive relationship where the person never has put their hand on you, but it's still an abusive relationship because abuse does not have to be physical. Many times there's patterns that are warning signs and signs that we need to be mindful of. Sometimes you may not even realize you're, you're in an abusive relationship until much later. You just know that you don't feel emotionally well in the relationship, something's off. You're not feeling really happy all the time, um, but you don't know what it is. You don't have the words or the vocabulary to identify it or to label it. In the book, you mentioned, Bill, that you say that patterns can add up to hardcore abuse. Can you share a bit more about what you mean by that? If the person that you are associating with keeps it coming, you know, it might change it might change its look and feel at different times, but it keeps coming. It becomes a campaign of this, mm -hmm. of, of this unhealthy behavior. And what happens is if you're on the receiving end of it, to put up with it, to hang in there, your self-esteem, you have to give up something for that. Because somewhere in your mind, you're thinking, this is, this is not me. This is not the life I wanted, but I keep hanging in here. You know, hanging in there enables that person who's doing it to keep it coming. Some of the people who fuel abusers the most are people who are being abused. 
it sounds ridiculous because you know you don't want what's going on, but the mere fact that you hang in there or you try to make it better or okay for that other person, you're actually fueling the thing you don't want. And I've thought about many times, I mean, it, if, if you think what a love relationship is like, a healthy relationship, one of the things that you don't feel is fear. You know, you don't, you don't associate a love relationship with abuse. You don't, you don't associate it with fear. Being afraid of somebody is, is not being in love with somebody. You might mm -hmm. think it is because of what it was before or what you think it'll be again. But none of us, until we really stop and put a big emphasis on this, none of us know enough about this. And I keep saying that if somebody were to feel like there's something really off about this relationship or somehow I feel like I'm changing to, to into somebody I don't really recognize or appreciate or my self-esteem keeps coming down, and it seems like it has something to do with this relationship. It's sh it sh the spark should be to talk with somebody who's trained in this area. You know, you could talk with your own family doctor who could lead you to somebody. You can call hotlines and do things like that. But you want to talk with people who are specialists in this. One of the things I tell people, because obviously, if they're if they're in a relationship like this, they have a fear of even calling these lines. Their fear is that it'll become public or somehow this other person will know. These lines handle this in a completely anonymous way. You want to feel for once in your life like you're back in control of your life. Because you, mm -hmm. you, if you're in one of these relationships, you've kind of handed a lot of the control over to the other person. Well, you definitely, if you call one of these lines, you're in control of that. But I just hope that people come to different realizations. You know, I've had times I've given talks. Uh, I remember a ninth grader came up to me at a high school afterwards. She kind of waited for her moment when no one else was standing around me. And she came over and she said that she was interested in a guy for something like six months. And she said that she broke up a few months before and it was very tense, but now he's kind of going on to somebody else. But she said, until I heard you talk about this today in your speech, I didn't even think of it as an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. I just thought he was difficult. And he, you know, he was great at times, but then he was really awful. And I didn't realize I was being abused. And I know now I get it mm -hmm. because she heard enough things to feel like she, she had the tools now to kind of piece it together and, and see that, that the result of what he was doing was purely and simply abuse. So yeah, that's um, critically That's really important. good. And that's why the work that you're doing and uh, just having relationship health education is so important that we're able to identify what that behavior is. So that, for example, that that person has trust issues and we're not romanticizing it and saying, oh, well, he just loves me so much. That's why he needs my passwords to access my social media because, you know, we're romanticizing this jealousy. So that's, you're so right that it's so important that we're able to get this information out there so people are able to identify what's actually happening. Yeah, um, that's big, very big. Mm -hmm. Glad you mentioned uh, that. In the book, Bill, you write that dating violence tragedies will become fewer when each of us gains a basic level of education about the red flags that exist in every unhealthy relationship. Most of us lack fundamental knowledge of what dating violence is, so it sneaks up and has us in its grip without our knowing it. I love the way that's phrased because it's so, it's, it just really represents exactly how domestic violence and dating violence happens. So what can people do to help end relationship violence? And how can the teen or the parent or the friend who's listening play a part in changing that stat of one in three? Yeah, that's a big job, isn't it? Before I spoke with detectives on the evening of June 3rd, I knew about as much as most people know about it today because I've asked people and that means I knew basically hardly anything. 
one of the things, you know, once, once we got on our feet a little bit about what happened with Kristen, I wanted to know why things like this happen to people. I'm not just curious, but I wanted to know because I thought I might be in contact with other people. And if I knew things I could share, then maybe they would miss this landslide hitting them. So I took it upon myself to learn everything I could because I knew people would say, well, why did this happen to her? And I wanted to be able to give them concise and clear answers and that were correct. And one of the things that uh, we were asked to do about five months after she was killed is there was a candlelight vigil back at her school. Each of us, my wife, my son, and I spoke. And the result of that was so many people came up and said that that was great. And they learned a lot. And they, they felt like they got to know Kristen. And they encouraged us to do more speeches. And over the course of years, I got these different opportunities. I would be interviewed maybe at times, or I might give a speech somewhere. By this point in time, now that we're 15 years later, I've given well over 100 speeches and interviews about this. I knew I had to somehow find ways to explain what dating violence was. And then the other thing is you give a speech, there's always a Q&A session at the end. People ask questions. I thought, I'm going to get these questions and I'm going to stand up there and there and go, I don't know. You know, you'd have to ask somebody else who knows this. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't have a good look. Very disappointing for people to sit and hear your story and then they can't ask you questions. I feel that over the years I've done pretty well with managing this information and and that's because I read about it, because I care. I mean, I'm really mm -hmm. doing it so I understand, but also that I can help others. But I asked mm -hmm. a lot of domestic violence professionals about it, and I've, I still have uh, people I would call friends who are in law enforcement who work that case that I can call anytime. And domestic violence agency directors, I have them on speed dial, so to speak, too. So I've really lived with this also for 15 years. So I've accumulated quite a lot of information, and I'm just happy to give it out. Yeah, I think it's really important that everyone can sort of play a part by educating themselves about the issue. Maybe we can be helpful to a friend, a family member, someone in our life, and really raise our voice against domestic violence. That is not something that's silent or hidden or that we don't talk about, um, that it's something that everyone is aware of and that we're all trying to put an end to this. I, in the book, you say it's an epidemic, which... It is. Yeah. It is. When I mean, you think of one in three people, you know, I mean, everybody has flus and coronavirus on their minds nowadays. But as far as I know, one in three people haven't gotten it at this point, mm -hmm. right? Even mm -hmm. though, you know, it's all we talk about. We don't spend all of our time talking about dating violence, you know, yeah. but it's, but it's, as we see, can be just as bad and can be just as deadly and mm -hmm. the numbers are higher. So yeah. And, yeah. and these are family members or friends we're talking about. This, these aren't, you know, these aren't individuals we don't know, right? If, uh, if someone wants more information about dating violence, uh, where should they go? Well, there are definitely a lot of places to turn to. We spent a lot of time, and, and you've quoted a lot of parts from the book. I obviously, since I wrote it, I know the book better than I know any, any uh, repository of information. So I would say, please consider picking up a copy and reading my book, which is called When Dating Hurts. Uh, and I say that because I've gathered everything I felt was important about Kristen's story that others could read about and learn about. It's not that I want everybody to know Kristen's story, I want people to know the story for this reason, and that is that you will see in her either yourself or you'll see people you know, because you'll say, wow, that sounds like my friend. That sounds like me to some degree. And I think people identify with her in some ways with our family. Then, you know, you, you know when you get the book, you know where it goes. 
So many people I've spoken with said they found it difficult to read because it wasn't like you read a book and about page 200, you find out what happened. You actually Mm -hmm. find out what happens in the beginning, but then you're perplexed to know why it happened and how it happened and all of that. I've always felt there's nothing like a good, strong, compelling story to bring somebody along and teach them something. So it's it's really mm-hmm. a cautionary tale. It's a teach piece. But you'll see what happened. You'll see what our family has done over these years, followed our journey, which I think is, is interesting enough to write a book about. And I think that those who have read it feel that way. But then you end up on the good information at the end too, that talks about the template we spoke about. And it talks about uh, warning signs and different things like that. If you don't, if you don't get the book, or even if you get the book, you can also just Google domestic violence agencies because they're going to have good information, or they're going to have somebody you can call and say, "Look, you know, I don't want to go through a whole thing. I just want to ask some basic questions." They always have hotlines. There are also some organizations. I'll just mention a couple, but one is called Love Is Not Abuse, and they're focused on dating and domestic violence. One of the things I think is so great is that they have a quiz on their website that will tell you if your relationship is healthy or unhealthy. I think that's fabulous. And again, you know, if you did it anonymously, if you just took a look at it and you started to click off yes, no, and that type of thing, and if it adds up to you really could be in an unhealthy relationship, that's kind of an objective group of people putting something together that can help you do the math. And you say, wow, you know, I was worried about this relationship, but now I really need to take action. And their aim is to build healthy relationships. You know, we, we've had a, a good discussion here today about unhealthy ones. Their focus is on healthy ones. And of course, they have to talk about the other. Mm-hmm. But they want to create a culture that doesn't have abuse through it. Sometimes it's just refreshing to stop and say, well, okay, I've heard all these horrible things. What's it supposed to be? It shouldn't be any fear you know, in in a relationship. You should feel great about that other person. You shouldn't feel challenged by that other person. You shouldn't feel like you have to change you for that other person. Mm -hmm. So I would say for people, you know, go in that direction. And then lastly, things like domestic violence hotlines. I encourage people, if you're worried about a friend or worried about yourself or worried about your child, whoever it is, someone you work with, could be anybody, call that 800 number, that free line, whatever it is, and just chat a little bit. You can hang up at any time. Nothing bad will come from it. One of the best pieces of advice I heard was that if you have a friend that you're worried about, say, look, what if the two of us call the line and both of us just talk? And if any point in time you don't want to do it, we'll hang up. We'll just go. We're not going to hurt anybody's feeling. But you and I don't know enough about this. I'm worried about you. You know that. I'm concerned. So we should do that. You want to get as much information as you can because you'll do a better job of interpreting the bits and pieces of what's happening. It won't be just kind of like bouncing off the walls with your emotions driving you and just making you feel crazy or feeling bad. You know, it really puts a framework into it. Absolutely. And one of the things your book does well is put the reader in the place of what you're experiencing. I think so many people have no idea what people like your family uh, go through and went through. So thank you for finding the strength and grace to be able to turn your pain into purpose. There's so much good that's coming out of the work you and your family have been doing over the years. And we know that dating violence includes every part of our society, like we've talked about. And I believe that people will find heart and hope in your book. And I absolutely know that this conversation and Kristen's story will help someone today. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you definitely understand what our motives were. And this Mm -hmm. could happen to anyone. And it really can. And I wanted them to think also, I can't let this happen to my family. Or I can't let this happen to my friend. Or I can't let this happen to me. 
And I know that some of the things that were spoken about today can be bothersome, but I, I've said this at the end of some of my speeches. I said, look, you know, if I've upset you, if you've cried, that meant that you became emotionally engaged with what we've talked about. Anything that drives you to take action is a good thing. And I mean, when I say take action, I mean learning about these things we've spoken about here that could wake you up to, wow, wait a minute, that's the thing. That's the thing I heard about. Could mm -hmm. be today, tomorrow, could be six months from now. But what you do today can prepare you for tomorrow. So I just wanted to say my family and I, including Kristen, we were not prepared. And you know what happened to her. And I don't wish that on anybody. Thank you, Bill, for your time and for your family's courage to share your story and Kirsten's story. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you today. And I, I hope that people are not saddened. I want them to be energized mm -hmm. because if they put a focus on this, then if something starts to come their way, they'll see it, they'll recognize it, and they'll be able to take steps. And I used to say to Kristen and David, and, and her mother said the same thing, I want you to be safe, I want you to be happy, but if you're not safe, you probably won't be happy. Mm -hmm. And Kristen was not safe, and she didn't know it, we didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I encourage people to, to believe in this and to do something, please. Absolutely. That we're not, you're not just telling Kirsten's story just to tell a story, but there's a purpose behind it. Um, I want to thank you for sharing that because I believe that someone listening out there today, take the time to educate and inform yourself about the warning signs so that you can help someone, whether it's for yourself, for your, your friend, your family member. Yes, thank you very much. That's great advice. Thank you. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but could happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy on to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.